Amen. Well done. Uh, open your Bibles to Revelations chapter 6. <clears throat> Excuse me, Revelation chapter 6. We'll start there and you can chase me throughout the middle section of the book today. This is, this is what is commonly viewed as the highly skippable section of the book of Revelation. Most sermon series focus on the early chapters of the book, the the letters to the seven churches, or maybe on the back end of the book, the new heavens and the new earth. And often this middle section is no man's land. Um, and all too often, this is, this is really why I'm so glad that we get to spend today in this section of Revelation. Um, this is how we treat it too. I don't know about you, but I am prone to skip this part in my, in my reflections and reading because we're unsure about how to make sense of all of it. Um, so we just skip the middle section of the book. But today we're, we're going to jump headlong into that section. And my hope is really to encourage you to read it with joy and understanding. Um, I've recommended and posted on our leader blog a guide to the book of Revelation by Professor Vern Poitras. Um, you should get that. It's free, and it will help you make sense out of this middle section of the book of Revelation. But in it, he says, Revelation addresses itself to his servants, not just prophecy buffs, not PhDs, not experts, not angels, but you. If you are a follower of Christ, this book is for you, and you can understand it. The third verse says, blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who, who take, take it to heart and what is written in it, because the time is near. God knew that some of his servants would hesitate over this book, so he gives extra encouragement to our reading by pronouncing an explicit blessing. Revelation is the only book in the whole Bible with a blessing pronounced for just reading it. So... Before we even begin today, let me encourage you, um, read this week, read this week chapters 6 through 16 in the book of Revelation, okay? Or you can have, you can listen to one of the listening apps, the Bible apps, um, but the midsection of this book, I want to encourage you, this week, give a listen to it, all 11 chapters, um, and let it soak in and, and delight in it. Um, the midsection of Revelation in chapters 6 to 21, really, consists of seven cycles. Now, that should not surprise you because the book of Revelation loves the number seven. It's used more than 50 times in the book of Revelation. Remember, it's highly symbolic, and it often represents fullness or completion, and so when, when we look at these cycles of judgment in this section of the book of Revelation, we're seeing the fullness of the judgment of God um, brought upon creation. So today we'll look at the first four of those seven cycles um, in chapters 6 to 16. That's right, we're going to go from 6 to 16 during the sermon today, not 6, 1 to 6, as it says in your bulletin. I think Kieran couldn't believe that I was mad enough to try to teach 11 chapters 
of the book of Revelation in one sermon, so she changed it. But we're going to go through all 11 chapters. So I hope you don't have lunch plans. Um, but obviously, we're going to fly really high today. Um, and that is by design. Because in the book of Revelation, oftentimes the devil is in the details uh, in a very literal way. That's where most of the abuse of the book of Revelation happens, is in trying to draw out too much meaning out of the details. Um, so for those of us who are not New Testament scholars writing commentaries on the book of Revelation, Dr. Poitras, again, gives us really good advice. He says, if Revelation is clear, why do so many people have trouble with it? Why is it so controversial? He says, we have trouble because we approach it from the wrong end. Suppose I start by asking, what do the bear's feet in Revelation 13.2 stand for? If I start with a detail and ignore the big picture, I am asking for trouble. God is at the center of Revelation. See chapters 4 and 5. We must start with him and with the contrast between him and his satanic opponents. If instead we try right away to puzzle out details, it's as if we tried to start using a knife by grasping it by the blade instead of the handle. We are starting at the wrong end. Then he says this. This is so beautiful. Revelation is a picture book, not a puzzle book. Don't try to puzzle it out. Don't become preoccupied by isolated details. Rather, become engrossed in the story. Praise the Lord. Cheer for the saints. Detest the beast. Long for the final victory. Okay, that's the best advice that I found about how to read the book of Revelation. I would add to that, read the book of Revelation with what has been called the hermeneutic of humility. You probably don't have it all sorted out. Okay. I watched a theological debate on how to interpret one part of the book of Revelation amongst some renowned scholars. And at one point, I thought it was going to come to blows, honestly. Um, rather than trying to convince others of your view, it will serve you better to listen, to seek to understand, and to learn from those who may hold a different view of the book of Revelation than you do. I'd say read the book of Revelation like you read the Chronicles of Narnia. Okay, um, We all know that Aslan is Jesus, right? But we also know that Jesus is not actually a lion. Okay? Similar kind of reading has to happen in the book of Revelation because it's a type of literature that's often called apocalyptic. Okay? It is highly symbolic. Even the numbers are often symbolic, like the number seven we've already seen is symbolic of fullness and completion. So read it for the story. Read Revelation for hope, for the awe of the holy justice of our God and our King. So as we start this section of the book, at this point, it become clear that there are a number of different ways to think about the book of Revelation. Um, there's not one interpretive perspective that holds a corner on the market and people who hold other views are simply non-thinking silly people. Okay? You can't think about it that way. Um, scholars that are far smarter than you and me hold all these different positions on how to understand the book of Revelation. So some view this section of Revelation as past. It was largely, if not totally, fulfilled 
in the first century with events surrounding the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. This is called the preterist position. You might read that. It just means past. Um, the partial preterist position. Um, and there's some really fascinating correspondence between the book of Revelation and that first century, uh, what went on. Now, there's another perspective where this section of the book of Revelation is happening now, in the present. Um, this section of Revelation, um, or this, this view, is often called the idealist position. It describes the spiritual battle that's going on throughout all of history. It's going on now. It doesn't tie the middle section of Revelation to specific historic events that have happened or will happen, but instead it looks for broad spiritual truths about how God engages evil in our world. Okay? Now, there's also a way of thinking about this section of Revelation that looks to the future. This section of Revelation describes the end of time almost exclusively, um, the time right before the return of Christ. Now, there's a fourth way to read this section of Revelation, and that is kind of an eclectic position. Um, it's most like the idealist position, but it, it allows for the fact that there were past fulfillments of these statements. Um, presently, we see God at work in our world in this same fashion, and there very well could be fulfillment yet waiting in the future. Um, and that's the way that I'm going to teach this section to you. It's the best way I know to honor the differing views that Christian scholars and our elders hold. Our elders hold different, those different positions are held by our elders. Um, and so we'll, we'll look through that lens primarily. I call my position the befuddled, eclectic, idealist position. Okay. <laughs> so, um, one of the scholars who helps me is a man named G.K. Beale, and he says that the message of Revelation does not merely concern the unfolding of future events. That's how, that makes great movies, but it's not the totality of the book of Revelation's message. It doesn't merely concern the unfolding of future events, but uses present events, understood in a symbolic manner, to speak both a warning and an encouragement to believers to persevere in their commitment to Christ and to divorce themselves from any allegiance to the world system which expresses the rule of the kingdom of darkness. The visions of chapters 4 to 21 are about the present, not just the future. We should expect, therefore, that the visions will speak to the life and history of the church in every age, including that in which the recipients of the book lived, even though there may be aspects which speak specifically to the time period immediately before Christ's return. So, as I said before, uh, in this part, this section of the book of Revelation is about to get a little cray-cray, so we should pray-pray. So, stop with me. <laughs> Let's just pray and ask God to make this good for our souls, all right? Lord, help us. Uh, help us. Um, we believe that your word, this section of your word, um, is good for us. Help us read it that way. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear what your spirit longs to say to us, your church, through this portion of Revelation. So... Lord, may my words serve your far greater and more beautiful words, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. So, when you read this section of Revelation, 
perhaps one of the most important things to remember is how we got here. Okay, how we got to chapter 6. In chapter 1, we get this stunning portrait of Jesus. You remember that? And right before it, we heard this proclaimed about who Jesus is, verses 5 and 6. Jesus Christ is the faithful witness. He's the firstborn of the dead. He's the rulers of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So it is of the utmost importance as we read these chapters about the severe judgments of God in these middle chapters that we remember two things from these verses especially. First, Jesus loves his people with such a passion that he would shed his own blood to free us from our sins and make us a kingdom and priests to our God. When you read this section of Revelation, know that the God who authors these things, he loves you. Revelation cannot be read rightly without the foundation of you reading it as the beloved of God. Okay? It, it will not work for you unless you get that. Um, in chapters 2 and 3, this plays out even more in the letters to the churches. You remember uh, in the vision of chapter 1 where Jesus was? He saw someone look like a son of man. He was walking around in the middle of the lampstands. The lampstands are the churches. Jesus is in the middle of his churches. Why? Because he cares about them. And he has a message for them. He writes seven letters to his churches. These are letters of care and concern. They literally are love letters from Jesus to the church. Jesus cares about his church. He loves it. He writes to it with concern and compassion and encouragement. Jesus cares deeply for you if you are part of his church Bear that in mind as you read this section of Revelation. But the second thing to keep in mind is that little phrase from those verses in chapter 1 that he is the ruler of the kings on earth. Okay. In chapter 4 and 5, we looked in on that throne room scene, that amazing scene of worship around the throne where angelic beings and living creatures of all of creation declared, worthy is the lamb who was slain. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. So there's one who sits on the throne and the Lamb there at the center of the throne. And all honor and worship is given to them because they reign and rule over all that is above the earth and upon the earth and under the earth. To make sense out of Revelation... This section especially, where the judgments and suffering is so severe, you must remember that God reigns through it all. He is on his throne as these judgments are unfolding. The one who loves you and has freed you from his sins by his blood is also the ruler of the kings of the earth. That gospel lyric has it right. He's got the whole world. In his hands. So remember, as you read these chapters this week, I hope you will, 
that you are reading about the one who loves you deeply and is reigning over everything that's unfolding in these chapters. So let's consider the first four of those seven cycles. They look like this. The seven seals in chapters 6 and 7, the seven trumpets in chapters 8 and 11, and then you could say the seven stories in chapters 12 through 14, and the seven bowls in chapters 15 and 16. And yes, Revelation is obsessed with the number seven. Um, because these things are bringing the judgment of God upon the earth in its fullness. Okay. So I'd like you to hear a little language. This is, this is an, uh, kind of a, a sneak peek of what you're going to hear this week as you read this passage. Um, so the first the seven seals in chapters 6 and 7 sound like this. John says, now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. These are the seals from chapter 5 that only the Lamb who was slain could open. When the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. And when he opened a second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. And when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. Do not harm the oil and wine. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with famine, and with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. Now, the sense that you get hearing those verses is what this is about, okay? These are the infamous four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? This is where the movies get that imagery from. They comprise the first four of the seven seals that were on the scroll we saw in Revelation 5, and they contain the preliminary judgments of God upon the earth for its opposition and rejection of his rule. Now, as terrible as these sealed judgments are, the seven trumpets and then the seven bowls all seem to intensify them even more. So, John gives us like a little break in between these things. So, chapter 7 is a beautiful, hopeful respite of worship sandwiched in between the seals and the trumpets. God has chosen and sealed a people whom he will protect during these judgments. It's here in chapter 7, amidst the greatest of sorrows and sufferings, that we hear these beautiful words of hope that we sung about this morning. They're given to God's people who come through a great time of suffering. And it says, therefore, they are before the throne of God. Serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, 
nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So don't, don't miss this injection of hope amidst the severest of judgments. Remember that the God who loves you and reigns over all of these things. Okay. So let's listen now to a sampling from the next cycle, the seven trumpet judgments in chapter 8. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. And the first angel blew his trumpet. And there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And those were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up. And a third of the trees were burned up. And all the green grass was burned up. And the second angel blew his trumpet. And something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died. And a third of the ships were destroyed. <clears throat> the third angel blew his trumpet. A great star fell from heaven blazing like a torch and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water in the name of the star is wormwood. A third of the waters became wormwood and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. So again, what we're reading is highly, highly symbolic, right? Professor Grant Osborne writes and he says it's clear that the trumpets are directed at the idolatry so prevalent in John's day and in our day, though in a different guise, he says. The first four trumpets recapitulate the Egyptian plagues from the book of Exodus, which themselves were addressed to the Egyptian gods. The plagues had a threefold purpose, to prove the sovereign presence and power of Yahweh, to show the powerlessness of the Egyptian gods, and to show Pharaoh, who was a god to the Egyptians, that he could not win over Israel's god. Primarily, the plagues were a cosmic struggle between Yahweh and the powers behind Egypt. All these elements are present in the trumpets and the bowls, except that the third element has been transferred into showing the earth dwellers not that Pharaoh can't win, but that Satan can't win. Okay. So again, after these first six trumpets are blown, there's a bit of a break, and this cycle then focuses on seven symbolic stories that acts as signs. And I don't have time this morning to read from those at all, but um, this contains the, the tale of the Christmas dragon that we preached on here last, last December in chapter 12. Um, the two beasts in chapter 13, the three angels and yet another angel with a sickle bringing a harvest of judgment upon the earth um, to follow in chapter 14. And after these stories play out, then come the severest of the judgments, the seven bowls. In chapter 15 it says, I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last for with them the wrath of God is finished. And then in chapter 16, it begins to unfold this way. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went, poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. 
The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. You can hear the echoes of the plagues if you're familiar with the Exodus story. Um, The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So, there's a sampling of the judgments of God that are contained in this middle section of the book. And of course, the question that we're thinking is, when is this going to happen? When do these judgments come upon the earth. And um, let, me, let me read to you some perspective on that from Pastor Sam Storms. He, he gives us wise counsel. He says, the beast is in that one of those seven stories. The beast is a symbol for the very real system of satanically inspired evil and thus opposition to the kingdom of God that throughout history has manifested itself in a variety of forms could be political, economic, military, social, philosophical, or religious. Anything and anyone that seeks to oppress, persecute, or destroy the church, he says, is, the, is, is like the beast. What I'm saying, he says, is that although the beast is very much involved in earthly events, the beast is also a transcultural, transtemporal symbol for all individual and collective, satanically inspired opposition to Jesus and his people. It is anything and everything, whether a principle, a person, or a power, utilized by the enemy to deceive and destroy the influence and advance of the kingdom of God. Thus, the beast at the time when John wrote Revelation was the Roman Empire. At another time, the beast was the Arian heresy in the 4th century that denied the deity of Jesus Christ. The beast is at one time the emperor Decius, or Decius, 3rd century persecutor of the church. At another, evolutionary Darwinism. The beast is the late medieval Roman Catholic papacy, modern Protestant liberalism, Marxism, the radical feminist movement, the Pelagian heresy of the 5th century. It's communism. It's Joseph Stalin. It's the 17th century Enlightenment, 18th century deism, Roe versus Wade, the state persecution of Christians in China and North Korea, militant atheism in the 21st century, and ISIS. Each of these, he says, individually and on its own, is the beast. All of these are collectively and in unity the beast. Will there also be a single person at the end of the age who embodies in consummate form all the characteristics of the many previous historical manifestations of the beast? And if so, should we call this person the Antichrist? He says, probably. So, so this, this painting and portrait of these judgments of these beasts, they're relevant to the first readers, they're relevant to us in our day, and they will be perhaps in a special way to those in the future at the end of time when Christ returns. So, when you read this week, these these chapters in the book of Revelation, um, what do they mean for us now? And let me give you several things to look for as you read. First of all, they're going to tell you in graphic form that evil really exists. And... It's evil, right? Um, It opposes God at every turn and his people. That's you. 
Consider this beast that opposes the two great witnesses of God in chapter 11. When these witnesses have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. In chapter 12, there's that red dragon who was thwarted in his attempts to devour the child who was the Christ child. And so he turns his wrath on those who follow Jesus. Verse 17, then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. The dragon is making war on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That's you and me. In chapter 14, there's an evil city called Babylon that tempts all the earth with her sexual immoralities. And there's another angel there, a second, who says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. It's worth noting that there's a strong connection here between the deeds of evil and sexual immorality. We can, we should say that porn is literally of the devil. It's nothing less than that. Evil exists and it viciously opposes God and his people. That means that you and I are in the crosshairs. That's really the second thing that you'll see. There is great spiritual battle underway in our world. It's reflected in these imageries in our day. Again, the language associated with that dragon in chapter 12 makes this very clear. It says, now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, and we drop down to that verse again. The dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. It's a war out there, right? That's why this is so hard. That's why what you hear on Sunday morning TV doesn't ring true to you. It's not all health wealth, and prosperity. It's hard. There's a war out there. Satan, our adversary, the adversary of our God, is after us. And his tactics are revealed, especially in chapter 13, when you read it about the beast, you'll see Satan's tactics. And Professor Grant Osborne summarizes it. He says, everything Satan does is a parody or a great imitation of what God has already done. This is fascinating. He says, the mark of the beast in chapter 13 in the right hand or forehead is a mere copy of God sealing the saints in the forehead. The false trinity, the dragon, beast, and false prophet, is an obvious copy of the triune Godhead. The mortal wound that is healed imitates the death and resurrection of the Lord. The dragon giving his beast power, throne, and great authority copies the relationship between God and Christ. The demand for the nations to worship the beast and dragon follows the constant commands in Scripture to worship God. 
Satan is a counterfeit God. And what that means for you in part is it is so very crucial for you to know the truth. I mean, to really know the truth of your faith. That you are daily in the scriptures. Reading, praying. That you come to these life change classes that are offered. You sit under our very best teachers. And you learn truth. Listen again to that great dragon story in, in chapter 12. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Satan is a deceiver, and he is among us. He, and it goes on to say, his angels are thrown down with him. So, it is, it is absolutely essential that you are on your guard and know truth. Evil exists, and there's a great spiritual battle underway. That's a war out there. The next thing that you'll see is that the people of God suffer greatly in this war. Okay? We do not get a pass on suffering or affliction at the hands of those who oppose God or his people. That's not how this works. Okay. Listen to how the description of the beast who opposes God in, in chapter 13 reads. It says, um, it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. That dragon makes war on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Um, chapter 7 mentions those who are martyred for their faith, who die for their faith. Now this morning, I can't begin to even discuss the why of your suffering, but I want you to know that within the reign of the one who loves you and freed you from your sins by his blood to make you a kingdom and a priest to his God. In that reign, there is room for his people to suffer. Okay. Suffering will come. It's part of the war. But there is also, you'll see it as you read it, there's mercy in the form of protection for those who do suffer in the faith. So when those four horsemen of the apocalypse mount up and they begin to open their terrible seals of judgment, first they're given this restraint by God. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. There is a mark, there is a seal on the foreheads, it's a symbol. Stop looking at the people next to you. Okay? It's a symbol that protects the servants of God from the fullness of these terrible judgments. 
And that mercy is given to us so that even amidst terrible suffering that comes upon God's people, we will stand and we will be faithful to our king. Verse 13, that beast was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. There's that counterfeit part, right? And all who dwell on the earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. And then he says this, if anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Okay. We suffer, but we stand. Okay. There's great evil in our world. There's a spiritual battle raging, and the followers of Jesus will suffer in that battle. We are not exempted, but we are strengthened so that we can stand. We can stand. Remember the encouragement back in chapter 2, that letter to the church at Smyrna? Remember this? It said, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison, that you may be tested. And for 10 days you'll have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And it's promised to be worth it no matter what the cost of our suffering. And make no mistake about it, as you read this week, you're going to see that the suffering is far worse for those without God's mercy in Christ. Listen, listen to this description from chapter 6 when the fifth angel opens his seal of judgment. The kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? The wrath of God and of the Lamb, it's a thing. It's real. It's prevalent in the book of Revelation. Chapter 14, another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or in his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, whoever receives the mark of its name. So, church, as you hear that sobering description of the terrible terrifying, ceaseless suffering of the judgment of God that waits for those apart from Christ. Let me ask you this morning, who's your one? By that I mean, who's the one person most on this earth that you love with such care that you desperately want them to be spared what I just read? 
Who's your one? Who do you love? And then I wonder, would, would you reach out to them this week? You know, somewhere on that prayer, care, share continuum that Rob Craig teaches us, would you take time to pray? Will you reach out and spend time and care for them? Would you speak of Christ to them wherever you are on that continuum with this person that you love? One thing is for sure. You don't want to be, and you don't want them to be, on the losing end of the wrath of God. Okay? And so this morning, it's really important. You're listening to all this. Could that be you? Could you be on the wrong end of the wrath of God? Are you in danger of that at all? Does that trouble you? You know, when you read it, you'll see in chapter 7, we alluded to it, it talks about followers of Jesus having the seal of God on their foreheads. Again, it's a symbol. Okay. As protection against ultimate evil. Satan has a counterfeit seal also on the forehead. It's called the mark of the beast. It's in all those movies, those books. 666 according to chapter 13. People have figured out all kinds of creative solutions. Professor Craig Keener says that if we adopt the rules to make names conform, we can eventually make any name fit 666. Indeed, everything from biblical scholars, of course, to scientists, to labor unions, to teenage mutant ninja turtles have surfaced as candidates for the Antichrist where their name matches 666. He says, a friend downloaded from the internet fresh speculation about Barney, the, the oft-loved dinosaur of children's television. If one adds up the potential Roman numerals in cute purple dinosaur, one ends up with a total of 666. It's a symbol. Okay? It's a symbol. One, one wise way to think about it comes from Professor G.K. Beale. He says, the repetition of six three times seems to indicate what might be called the completeness of sinful incompleteness found in the beast. Because what does the number seven represent? Completeness and fullness. So the six is incompleteness. So he says, the beast epitomizes imperfection while appearing to achieve divine perfection. Three sixes parody the divine trinity of three sevens. It's a symbol. It's not necessarily a tattoo or a QR code. Okay? It could be, but what really should concern you is does that, it, it represents who you stand with. It marks you by your life. Do you stand with Christ even when evil woos or threatens, when suffering is great? Do you, do you bear his mark? Professor Beale again writes, Revelation shows that history involves spiritual war. In this war there are two sides. 
you're either for God or against him. You either serve God or in one way or another you'll be found worshiping Satan and his bestial agents. Thus, Revelation implicitly issues a challenge like Joshua. Choose this day whom you will serve. Go back with me to that scene of that dragon again that we've been talking about. Chapter 12. This loud voice declares the salvation, the power, and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the abuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him. How? By the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. So those who conquer do so first of all, above all things, by the blood of the Lamb. That is, they trust in Jesus' cross work to bear the penalty for their sins and restore them to a right relationship with God. So this morning, is that where your trust fully, wholly is? Then it says, by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. That is, they have an enduring, persevering faith. They don't ultimately give in to doubt and unbelief. They fight the good fight of the faith, as Paul calls it. They heed the call of Revelation 13. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. That evidences the true nature of their faith. So if you've expressed faith in Jesus at some time, but you are not following him, that is a very precarious place to stay. This morning, you should find someone to help you and run to Jesus anew. Don't trust in some past experience. So, So what to carry away from all of this as you read these chapters this week? First of all, read the chapters this week, okay? Read them. I have just skipped a rock across and it only hit the water about twice. So read these. And remember, Revelation is a picture book, not a puzzle book. Don't try to puzzle it out. Don't become preoccupied by isolated details. Rather, become engrossed in the story. Praise the Lord. Cheer for the saints. Detest the beast. Long for the final victory. Read it that way this week. Love it. This is awesome. This is the word of our God. Secondly, if you are suffering, know that you are not some sad exception. We are at war. Suffering is part of living in a war zone. The God who loves you and reigns over our world knows he's working out a glorious rescue. But now, now is the time where there is a call to endurance and faith. Third thing to think about, do you have a friend who you long to be spared the impending judgment of God? You're one. Take a next step this week. Set aside time to pray for them. I mean, really set aside time and earnestly pray. Invite them over. Let them know that you really care about them. Share your story with them. Ask to hear their story. Share the good news of Jesus if you're at that point. And lastly, and perhaps most importantly, if you think you are vulnerable to the judgment of God this morning, you should run to Jesus. Find shelter in the love of the one who would free you from your sins by his own life's blood. Okay? 
And that's a thing you can do even now while we pray. So let's pray together. So, Lord, if you would, in your kindness, redeem this portion of Scripture for our good in our reading this week. I imagine we'll all be too busy to find time to spend 30 minutes and read this. Lord, don't let it happen. Don't let our adversary deceive us even at that level. I I pray we would be happy, faithful readers this week. Lord, bring these things to us with clarity, your just judgments upon evil, what that means for us in terms of hope for those of us who suffer, what it means for us in terms of life for those who would cast their cares on you. So, Lord, I pray especially for those here who feel vulnerable. They have a sense that they're not in the kingdom They've not yet been made a kingdom and priests to this great God. They've not been adopted as sons and daughters. And I pray that you might grant them faith now to cast their sins and troubles on Jesus. Turn from them and hope solely in him as their savior and their king. Um, Lord, inspire in us an awe of your worth. um, That we might say with the saints that you are worthy the one who judges justly, holy, 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 worthy of our praise. We offer it now in Christ's great name. Amen. If you'll stand, let's worship our King.